All right. Okay. Ready? I am here. I was born ready. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do this thing. Okay. So I have two points to follow up from the previous episode. Okay. First thing is I need to create correct my pronunciation of Kales. Uh, I kept saying Kales. Uh, it should be Kales. This is the guy from the Klingon opera. The, this is the, the guy. Sort of messianic hero figure. Yeah, exactly. Um, Kales. Uh, and so that's number one. Number two is we had a comment on the subreddit uh, saying that we should have mentioned Hangul, the Korean write- writing system. Right. As a writing system uh, that was invented essentially by one dude. Oh, okay. So this is what we were saying that they, they have all evolved and no one just wakes up and creates a script. That exactly. Actually, Hangul was pretty much done that way. Yeah, by a guy called Sejon the Great. Um, and a, yeah, fair enough. I mean, if you invent a whole writing system, that's a. <laughs> I think that qualifies for the great. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and qualifies definitely for a mention on a podcast. You know. Oh yeah, well, a minimum. Um, and so also the uh, the commenter linked to a video all about uh, the Korean writing system. I'll throw this link in the show notes. Uh, it's by a guy called Zidnaf. Okay. Uh, who is a really good YouTuber. He's a small YouTuber uh, who does linguistics videos. Uh, he's really good. You should check him out. But can I please implore the internet to stop sending me messages uh, <laughs> to check this guy out? Because I cannot tell you how many, like, I can't even begin to describe how many ev- um, comments I've received saying, oh, you should really check out Zidnaf. I know. <laughs> I know, guys. I know. It's okay. I, I've got this, all right? Because I've been subbed with him. I remember, I think I subbed up to him when he had under a thousand subscribers. Right. And he's at something like 10,000 now. Uh, so I've been with him from the start. So, uh, so what you're saying is you were into his Zidnaf before he was cool. Yeah, man. <laughs> I know, right? But no, but seriously, no more messages. Really, it, it, it's fine. It's cool. I'll put a link to his channel. Everyone check him out. He's, he's awesome. Fair enough. Okay, so do you have any points to follow on from the previous episode there, Bill? Yeah, so we were talking to the uh, user Lupier on the Reddit. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about black metal and how that connects to world building. Particularly, there's a band, Immortal, who actually recently uh, disbanded, which is terribly, terribly sad. Oh, poor Immortal. Yeah. Immortal are quite interesting in that all of their stuff is based in this sort of frozen northern realm uh, of mysticism and occultism and things. Okay. And it, it comes up a lot in, in their lyrics. Uh, you know, it, it builds on the sort of black metal trope of the frozen wastelands of Norway kind of thing. Okay. So they have a, a realm called Blaskir, or Blasiach, I think it is. Okay. And it it comes up a lot in their lyrics anyway. And they, they craft stories and this whole mythos around themselves and their involvement here. And that's not entirely uncommon in black metal, I guess. And Lupier was saying that he would find black metal to be a big inspiration for him in terms of world building. And when he listens to this music, he sees these frozen wastelands and it inspires him to be creative, which reinforces the point that you can take inspiration from anything, you know, anything at all can be the creative impetus. Definitely. That's, that's very true. Ties us into episode one, the the initial pilot of this. Episode zero. Episode zero. Yes. Oh God. (laughs) Uh, I, I regret Calling episode one, episode zero. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that first episode. Yeah, you can find inspiration in just about anything. Yeah. And a thing I'd like to talk about is actually something going slightly the other way. Because obviously world building comes up in things like opera. 
if you're creating sort of a fantastical story, then world building is going to be an element of that. How you portray the the setting that your your opera is set in. But on the topic of black metal, there is a really interesting uh, English black metal band called Bal Sagoth. Okay. Who I, I told Lupier that I would talk about someone on the podcast, but I, I didn't reveal who. But anyway, this is them, Bal Sagoth. They're from some, somewhere in Yorkshire, I believe. Stupid question, Bill. Mm-hmm. Is York in Yorkshire? Yes. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so you were in Yorkshire. So this is from your adopted home. I guess. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, they, I think they might be from, like, Sheffield or something. I'm not sure. Okay, um, well, go for it. I could be completely wrong. But they have about six albums, and they've been described as black metal meets H.P. Lovecraft meets Star Wars. Wow. Yeah. Across <laughs> their six albums, across each of their six albums, they have a number of uh, continuing storylines or continuing settings uh, with recurring characters and stuff. So the first album I got was their their sixth, their final album. It came out about 10 years ago. And it's a story about uh, a war between an empire and sort of other mystical tribes and things. And the lyrics booklet that came with the CD actually has a map of their setting in it. Oh, cool. Yeah. So obviously, you know, Teenage Bill discovering this, it was metal and it was fantasy world building. I was, I was immediately very, very taken. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so that's one of their stories about this, this imperial war that lasts across several of their albums. They've another one about a, an archaeologist, a sort of a Victorian era archaeologist called Caleb Blackthorne, I think, who travels around the world unearthing Egyptian ruins and Sumerian ruins and discovers eldritch horrors from beyond time, a very H.P. Lovecraft kind of thing. Wow. So they, they have this this these running themes and this sort of consistent world building. And it's not told chronologically or anything. All the different elements of the story and the different periods of the story are split up kind of more or less at random between their various albums. It's really worth checking out. I mean, if you're, if you're into metal and you're into... If you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> so you're into world building and stuff, it's it's definitely worth a look. And for a while, the singer Byron was the only metal singer who had official sponsorship from an armor company. <laughs> this sounds hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> that he, is brilliant. He, yeah, Byron is the vocalist's name, and like they would perform wearing armor and you know with maces and things sometimes. Oh, proper and legit armor, like proper forged stuff. Um, well, I think some of it might be in, like, leather armor, maybe, but, uh, yeah, p- perhaps male. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. That's really cool. There's a band actually called the Meads of Asphodel who don't perform live because they play in armor. Why would you do that? Why not just not wear the armor to play live? <laughs> well, th- there are some bands that, like, it, like in metal and things, that, that aren't live projects, that are studio projects. There's an Anan Lafrak does that, I think. They very, very rarely play live, and they initially formed with the intention of only being a studio band. Really? Yeah. That sounds really hindering. You're cutting out huge revenue and huge opportunity to spread your music through live shows. Touring is very expensive, though. Yeah, but do you not make a ton of money on merchandise and exposure and things like that? Not necessarily, no. Oh, so do you think touring is like a necessary evil for bands? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't realize that at all. I thought that's where you make the big bucks, like. Like, it can be, but, I mean, basically all of it is difficult starting out. And these guys were all in other bands anyway, I think. So they had the expertise and they had the access to studios and things. So they were like, look, we already do a lot of touring. We want to make music together. Let's not bother touring it. Let's just record it. 
and, and are these people in the minority that are just studio bands, or is this a? Oh yeah, no, it would be very. It would be a minority, but it does exist. Okay. Oh well, yeah. I did not know that. There we go. There we go. Learn something new every day. <laughs> uh, my my thoughts to this world building and black metal thing. Um, mm-hmm. I I I don't really like black metal. Mm-hmm. I don't dislike it. I just never really got into it. It just doesn't uh, engage with me uh, as much as it say it does with you. Um, mm-hmm. With the world building thing in it, can it isolate new you new consumers of the music? Like if you just stumble across their music and it has all of it's referencing all of these places and characters and things like that can that be isolating what do you mean by isolating as in you just people don't engage with it they don't get it because it's like well who is who is Kalis? i don't know who, who they're singing about what's this about possibly although I, I would expect not because first of all it can be hard to figure out what the lyrics in black metal are anyway that's, <laughs> that's a valid point yeah and they they often do tend to be quite obscure when you do know them Black metal often tends to reference mythology and things, which a lot of people don't know about. Okay, I, mean, I, I guess I guess it's possible, but I'd be surprised if that was if that was a huge influence or if that was a huge uh, result of this approach. See, I I'd be surprised if it wasn't, because hmm. with the way music is consumed, like you know, you said about the maps. Yeah, like you don't get a map with downloading it off iTunes, you know. Yeah. So you all, so you all from the start, you don't get all the detail, right? Um. So for me, I'd be, I don't know. I think I'd be wondering well, what's going on. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Um, I mean, it, the work stands on its on its own merits. Like it's it's really good, of the kind of black metal that it is. That's kind of like slightly symphonic, synthy black metal. It's it does that well. Okay, so, so they're not they're not leaning on the creation of this world to sell their stuff in a way. Like it is decent no, music. No, no, not at all. Like it, it yeah, it's, it stands on its musical merits, and it has this added element to it. Like if you had, you know, if you had a film that had really compelling and a lot of backstory to it, you wouldn't need necessarily to know all the backstory to enjoy the film. But you could go and then find it out or whatever. That's a very good analogy, actually. That's mm. a very, very good analogy. Yeah, that's true. And I think maybe I would be compelled to go look for the backstory if I heard something that musically engaged me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very valid point. Right, what's the next what's next on the uh, item of follow up there? So, we talk about these emails. Yes, let's talk about some emails. So, we received emails which uh came as a great shock to me. I was delighted. You were well, you were delighted cuz they're all directed at you. <laughs> Hold on, they're both. Let's let's not let's no, not overstate Bill, the case here. Bill, no, no, we have to sell it, right? We have to sell this. Cuz like <laughs> if someone stumbles across us, we want to give the impression that millions upon millions of people are emailing us on a monthly <laughs> basis. <laughs> No, well, because I, I said, I put out a call for people to email Bill and people answered my call. Uh, and I want to thank people for that. That's really cool. <laughs> That's a genuine thanks for getting in touch. It's really cool to have, uh, to be able to uh, talk about how people view our stuff, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really great to be able to engage with the audience this way. So thanks very much, guys. Definitely. Do you want to start off talking about uh, Ari Lev's email, perhaps? Yeah. Okay, so this is from the very... First episode where I was talking about Galarian. Yes, and you gave it a lot of praise. You really like it. I do. I, I really like it. I think there's a lot to like about it. And Ari Lev sent us an email, and he points out what I think are very good, uh, very good, and very valid points. That it's based, it's based on tropes, and it's based on very familiar tropes, cliches almost. Mm. The people, the Tians, are essentially the Asians, and players call them the Asians. The Mwangi are the Africans, the Ulfran are the Vikings, the Verizians are the Gypsies. Yeah. And that, you know, he finds it very flat that the 
the history is kind of empty and that the, there's no gradients or subtleties to it. Which I don't know if I agree with that point so much. I think the I think the languages are are reasonably well done. But what's your response to the uh, stereotyping? Do you concur with Ari Lev? The stereotypes are there, and that would be a terrible thing if this was a literary setting. Like if I had just come across this and it was a it was a book or it was a series of novels, I'd drop it in the bin and walk away and never think twice. Right, but. It's a gaming setting, so it needs to engage people in a different way, and it needs to provide familiar hooks for GMs and for players to kind of hang their understanding of things on. Okay, yes. So it's kind of a necessary evil in a way, and I think accepting that as a necessary evil, Galarian is done really, really well. Right, okay. It's like if you, if, you know, the assumptions that the game makes, you know, Pathfinder is essentially an updated version of uh, third edition D&D. And the assumptions that that game makes, you have to have orcs and elves and dwarves for anyone to have any interest in it. Because if you remove those elements, then it becomes something too different. Yeah. You know, if it was a different gaming system, if it was like a a completely homebrew system, then you would have more freedom to change things around. But I still think you'd need to have a lot of familiar tropes for people to engage with because they're not going to read, you know, hundreds of pages of setting to understand the world. Yeah, as con- like as stereotyped as orcs are, we all know what they are instantly. Yeah, exactly. And we're exactly. able to engage with them instantly. What I will agree with is the uh, what, the point Ari makes about the history, and this is all over histor- or This is all over histories in fantasy fiction. They're just they're too big in scale. Like every empire has lasted three thousand years and stuff, and. Like three thousand years ago, we couldn't. We didn't have shoes, you know. <laughs> it's like yeah. Um, the I suppose my response to that is: is that just not an aesthetic thing to get? You know, why fantasy is big. Yeah, but th- that that particular aesthetic thing does take me out of it for some reason. My suspension of belief just is really unforgiving in that one specific point. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think I would be like that at all. But there you go. Difference of opinion, Bill. People have them sometimes. <laughs> Oh, no, totally, totally. And they're all valid. Well, some of them are. Your points are almost identical to mine. When I read Ari's email, I immediately thought, yeah, it is really stereotyped. Um, yeah. But that's, that is that is a necessary evil. I have a friend who um, studied game development. Okay. And some of his lectures were on the importance of stereotyping in gaming environments. Yeah. Uh, and they, like, actively teach you to stereotype, to ensure that people who consume your game understand what's going on right away. Because gaming is not, uh, there is no deep reading in gaming. Mm-hmm. And you don't have time to immerse yourself in the world as much as with a book. Yeah. And so hence the reason why you need the stereotypes there. And unfortunately, yeah, they are, they are it's not great, I suppose, but it's a different platform. Yeah, it's, it's part of the, the restrictions imposed by the medium. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, the, the thing he does say here, uh, another thing, point he makes is he doesn't play Pathfinder Society anymore. Now, that's a organized play campaign that is kind of, you know, you, I, I've, I've never played it exactly. I, I'm vaguely familiar with the idea that they, they, release, um, they release games and then, like, everyone can play them. And it's sort of even an evolving character and they have storylines that take place over a year. Okay. Um, and I can I can see that causing problems. That would probably be something with me that would 
upset me the same way that I find a lot of superhero comics do, or kind of any sort of shared universe comics do, that, you know, it's, it's a shared universe. And, and once you start examining the fact that it's shared, things no longer work. Do you know what I mean? No, can you elaborate on that? I, I okay, don't fully so, see your point. So, for example, with superhero comics. So, Fantastic Four are fighting Doctor Doom. Okay. And Doctor Doom traps them in a magic thing and then proceeds to wreak havoc and they have to escape and stop him. Right. Why can't the X-Men do it? Okay. <laughs> All right. Like, yeah, okay, uh, I see. <laughs> the, the, and this is the problem I have with these sort of shared universes as regards superhero comics. And then every writer writing their own stories at different rates. So 12 issues of Spider-Man takes place over a month and then 12 issues of Thor or some other superhero comic or whatever takes place over six months or two years or something. You and so think. Sorry, this, this really bothers me as as a as a reader. I, I just I can't suspend my disbelief that way. If if you and I were to write a story, right? Mm-hmm. And I wrote the equivalent of Fantastic Four, and you wrote the equivalent of X Men. Yeah, we could easily get around the shared universe thing by you placing your X Men stories in I don't know the Alpha Quadrant of a galaxy. And then right. replacing the Fantastic Four stories in the Delta Quadrant, so they don't. But then it's not them. in any meaningful way a shared universe, because they're they're not really sharing anything. Whereas in Marvel they do; they're all in North America. Okay. And they all interact with crossover storylines and things. But is that the definition of shared universe? That the interaction between, not just a statement in the lore that these exist in the same like physical universe. I I don't know what the definition would be, but for the working on the the thing we're discussing i mean that is the that is the fact of it that they okay fair know, point the x-men and spider-man and fantastic four all live in new york and the avengers and so i, I wonder does pathfinder society or other organized play campaigns that are kind of you know these, these living campaigns have similar problems in that you know things don't really really add up when you start to examine them bill is this you calling for people to email you further on this point I think people should email Bill on what they think about Pathfinder Society. Well, I've never played it, so I really will have no valid or interesting response to give, but I they're think, welcome to. I think everyone <laughs> should email Bill all the time. Every every episode, we need to find some way of getting people to email Bill. <laughs> so we got another email from uh, a John, and it was a response to your call for people to create non-verbal languages mm-hmm. and uh my tldr of it is that it's a um sort of third party psychic communication system um do you think that's a fair description yeah the way i saw it is you're using uh, a third party as a dead drop right yeah or as like a p.o box like a drop so, it's like a drop box yeah exactly anyway I'll, I'll read out roughly kind of what he says Cool. No, he says, admittedly, it's less of a language and more of a signal relay correspondence. But the, the implications of it is, is what's kind of interesting here. Okay. Uh, psychics can't communicate directly. and They can't read the minds of other psychics. What happens is the first psychic plants a message into the mind of a non-psychic host. And then the second psychic can read the mind of the host to retrieve that message. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing about it is that the thought message that's implanted is going to be, uh, like, the, the host won't know anything about it. 
except for they get sort of phantom occurrence of sensations that the psychic implanting the message was experiencing at the time. So yeah. say you, you're leaving, say you're leaving a voicemail, and this is the example John uses, and you're chewing mint bubblegum at the time. Then when you implant the message, the host kind of gets a sort of a, a minty sensation. It's kind of a, a minty flavor. Yeah, which which is a really interesting concept. Yeah. And then he was like, maybe you could extend that into being uh, an explanation for deja vu or things like that. But that might be a... He, he, he was kind of worried it might be a little contrived. I don't think so. I think that's kind of an interesting spin on it. No, not at all. I didn't think anything about uh, his concept was contrived at all. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, with respect to John, I, I don't think he realizes how great this idea is. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, because, so when we received these emails, I spent a good bit of time pondering about them. And the more I thought about this idea and the more I thought of the implications of this idea, the more brilliant the idea seemed. Um, so I really like this idea. No, yeah, I thought it was cool. I thought it was uh, very cool. What are your, what are your thoughts on it? Um, or do you have any, or do you just thought that's good, cool? I, I just, I just thought that's cool. <laughs> okay, I have thoughts. Okay, this may get a little bit long-winded, so feel free to cut me off. Okay. Oh, that's unlike us. I know, right? <laughs> um. So my initial thought was, this is silly. Okay. Okay. Sorry, John. That was my initial thought, but it gets better. So hang in there. My, it was silly because I was like, this would not like arise naturally. I didn't think anyways, because I didn't see there was a significant payoff for the host. Um, So like, like, because it presents a sort of symbiotic relationship, but without a payoff for the symbiote in a way. But then I thought, wait, it's not really natural. It can be a constructed thing. Like people could like genetically engineer said hosts, you know, like, like create them. And then it comes, then you need to ask the question, why would they do so? Right? Like, why is the need to communicate psychically so important? Like, assuming they can also speak with their mouths, right? Yeah. And then, right? And then I thought of, you know, the movie Waking Life by Richard Linklater? I haven't seen it. It's a great movie. I encourage everyone to go watch it. It's fantastically avant-garde. It's really good. And if anyone likes philosophy, it's a really good, like, starting point. So in that, there's a scene about language and how, how when I say something to you that's abstract like fear or love or envy and things like that, that have no concrete thing in the real world. That sound is sent through the air, sent up through your Byzantine conduit into your brain and is filtered through all your memories of what you think that thing is. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and then you and then you form an idea of it and you go, yes, I agree with you, person, you are talking about love. Yeah? You with okay. me? Okay. I'm but, with you. But you but you and the other person would never have experienced the exact same love. Like on a on a like a real level. There is no way of experiencing exactly what the other person has experienced. Okay, but yet we find a way to identify with one another. Okay? Right. So perhaps these two psychics uh that John um John's concept is about are like an advanced form of humans who have like developed the ability to communicate psychically and have placed even greater emphasis on the need to really understand the intangible experience of each person. Okay? So okay. When, when they do communicate with the host and they implant the things in the host, like phantom traces of like what you've been eating, and I assume it would also extend to like phantom traces of memories and of feelings, there's a payoff for the other psychic because they get to like physically experience all the abstract intangible things that we cannot physically experience from another person. Are you with me? 
I think so. And I mean, although you could just, if, if you wanted to transmit that, then the side effect, the, the um, stimulus side effect wouldn't be necessary. Why could you not just implant everything that you associate with the word love? No, but it's not, no, it's not your associations. Like if we take fear, okay? Yeah. Let's take fear, right? I've experienced fear in one way, okay? Mm-hmm. A, u- a unique way to Edgar, right? And then okay. I tell you a story in which I'm afraid. Okay. Right? And then you relate to that fear because you relate it to how you've experienced fear. Yeah. But perhaps maybe there's some distant future when we've developed like telepathic communication like this, that we would place great emphasis when communicating with one another at really like physically understanding what the other person's emotion is. Not right. just understanding it through our perception, but understanding it through their perception. Yeah. Yeah, which we can't do now. And which yeah. which could be facilitated through this. Yeah, that's, and that's what I'm saying. I don't, yeah. uh, could you not just implant those things automatically? And I don't see what the what the the phantom stimuli experienced by well, the host how are you, has how to are do you, with it. How are you implanting them automatically? No, not not, sorry, not automatically, but directly. You're just saying the message you are leaving is all of your associations. Yeah, no, but you, uh, John sets it up that you can't do it directly. Like that's part of his world. That the, the what you call it, the no, not directly to the other psychic, but the, the the message you leave is not anything. Is not words. The message you leave is just your associations. Oh yeah, but surely that would be another thing. How one can communicate, like if you just have a feeling message as opposed to a verbal thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like, as in, like, that sort of the idea of constructing a host may have arisen out of people going, oh, we can, like, communicate these intangible things. And then, obviously, you can also do the more mundane vocal things as well. But I think, I think the, like, just the communicating a, a message, like a vocal message, if you will, wouldn't really be enough to merit the construction of this host. Because, like, you could do that with, like, okay. with, like, with, like words or with, with writing. You know what I mean? L- I like, see what you mean. Like, yeah, a, a verbal message can also be a, vi- uh, a visual message. Hmm. Whereas the host is, it can be an emotional message. Right. Anyhow, that may probably made no sense. But no, 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 I, th- I think I get you now. I think I get you now. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. That's, yeah, that's so, an interesting spin on it. So from my mind of thinking, I thought this was brilliant. Like, really brilliant. Like, because it, it, it plays this idea of, you know, what it means to be human and how we connect with each other as humans and, like, the abstract nature of our existence. Like, a, a philosophical, like, void opened up beneath me when mm. I read this. And it was, like, a good couple of hours of this wonderful sort <laughs> of adventure through philosophy land. It was awesome. John, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to dispute you in one thing, though. Oh, go for it. Why could it not arise naturally? I just didn't see enough payoff for the symbiont, for, for the host. I didn't see what the host was getting out of the symbiotic relationship. Who says it's a symbiotic relationship? Well, I suppose maybe I read it like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see, like, why couldn't it just be something that, that like, that's whatever that, uh, you know, mutation threw up this thing that people could be psychic but not deal with other psychics. Because, you know, evolution doesn't happen to a grand plan or anything. It just, it just you know, weird stuff happens and some of it sticks. So why couldn't it be that this was the, the, random, thi- the random thing that got thrown up and stuck that some people could read, but they couldn't read other people who could read? And so they just happened that they could use hosts instead. Yeah, but wh- how like, would the hosts show up, you know? 
because they didn't get that gene or whatever. Yeah. Like, why are some people blonde? And yeah. Some people aren't. Yeah, or, no. You've, and you say, like, what do, what do the hosts get out of it? I mean, what do, I don't know, what do people get out of having the cold? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good point. I think I just read symbiotic into it, actually, now that you put right. that forward, because, yeah, that fairly demolishes my symbiotic argument. Uh, maybe a part of me wanted it to not arise naturally in that they would have to genetically engineer them to avail of this ability to be able to communicate the abstractness of the human condition. But maybe I mean, they, can still, they can still do that, even if it arises naturally. Yeah, yeah, no, I suppose... Yeah, everything you said is still... It's still possible if it's if it's a, a natural thing. Something about it, just the more I look at it now, there's something kind of sinister about it to me. There's something kind of, I don't know, like invasion film about it. Oh, I just get hippie... Like it's, like it's pod people. Oh, I get hippie dippies. That's all I get. I see a <laughs> load of hippies wanting to talk to each other on like the most fundamental of level. <laughs> and it's, this is the great thing about you know, creating something is that you can read into it so many different ways and it could bring a different sense to so many people, you know? The death of the author, what? Yeah, yeah, all right. Um, So, do we have any other points to make or anything else to uh, review? I have a very small one, actually. Go for it. To um, refer to Master and Commander, which I I think we spoke about in the very first, in episode zero. Yeah, the uh, Macho Macho film. The what? The Macho Macho film. Macho it's, film. It's really macho. It's like men at sea. Remember? I guess. I guess it's 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 quite manly, but I wouldn't have thought it was really like gung ho or anything. I thought. Did you not put it to me like that? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. No, like it's it's manly, like, but it's not like manly full of explosions. It's not like you know Rambo like, man. Like like yeah, like everyone's favorite Die Hard. Yeah. Die Hard is there's more to Die Hard than that, Edgar. Uh, I before we talk about Master Commander, I, I thought it was really funny that we got a comment about my dislike of Die Hard. Oh, did we? <laughs> and then I thought I I was hoping that someone would be like Edgar. I understand you. I get it. Die Hard is not a good film. No, <laughs> not at all. They were just like Edgar. You're wrong. Simple as. <laughs> Well, what can so, I say? <laughs> I know. I shouldn't have been hoping for this. It's just the way it is, you know? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Master and Commander, what's up? So we were talking about the character Maturin. Yeah. Who's the naturalist and the doctor on the ship. And how the, the film implies that if it wasn't for certain events in the film, he would have discovered Darwin's theory of uh, natural selection. Mm-hmm. And you know this this like that breaks my heart every time I watch this film. It just it's so sad. Aww. But just an interesting side point is Paul Bettany, the guy who played Maturin, actually did play Darwin in another film. Oh wow! Well, that's cool. Called Creation. Oh wow! Yeah. Huh. There you go. Bit of bit of Master and Commander follow up there. Cool. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Do you think this is intentional on the people casting it? I. Or just, yeah, it'd be nice if it was intentional. Yeah, I, really I cool. hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's cool. Nice bit of follow-up there. Cool. Mm. Uh, I have one final point, and this is going to be a very sort of left-of-field one. But I was at the local uh, art gallery recently. So okay. This is the the visual in Carlo. It's opened about, uh, I don't know, maybe six years ago. All right. And they had a exhibition, which just closed yesterday, in fact, called... Cosmic Dust. Oh, cool. That sounds like something I like. Yeah, no, there was really interesting, really broad range of things. It had um, the film of 
uh, Voyage to the Moon from like the early 1900s, you know, the Jules Verne novel? Uh, no to both of those things. No idea. Okay, well, Jules Verne wrote a, a novel called Voyage to the Moon in, in which I think some guys, they get shot out of a cannon to the moon because they, they were, at the time, they were like, hey, we could just use cannons to launch rockets. That would be cool. <laughs> so, um, Brilliant. Yeah, these guys go to the moon. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite well known. And then there was a, a film, a very early film made of it in France. Uh, so it's called uh, Le Voyage dans la Lune, or however oh. it's correctly pronounced in French. Cool. So that was one of the things that was being projected. And they had loads of other things about sort of cosmic ideas and, and that. They also had some books from occultists and esotericists from the early 20th century. Like they had stuff from Rudolf Steiner, who was a, a mystic, and I think he was interested in perpetual motion and things. Okay. But the thing that interested me the most was uh, a piece by an artist called Chris Fita Vasilak. Right. Who, as it turns out, is actually based in Dublin. Anyway, his, his piece is called A Lobius Historical Excerpt, 2122. And it was presented as three documents just left in various places around the gallery that you could wander around and read as you wished, as you came across them. Okay. And it's, an, it's a sort of um, uh, epistolary project. It's three letters written from people in 2122 about letters written by sort of esotericists and environmentalists in 1922, which was just before they discovered perpetual motion. That's meta. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting. So, and I think the people in the, the 1922 letters are real people. I, I, haven't, I haven't had time to study it fully, but it looks as though they are real people and that the letters themselves might actually be real and that the... The commentary on them, the, the commentary from twenty one twenty two, is what's um, what what the art project is. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, I don't know a lot about this guy. He, as I said, he's based in Dublin, and I think he's got a, a WordPress site. So I'm certainly going to look into him more. But this is essentially it's it's world building because he has created the setting. It's just the his medium is art. Yeah, and that's interesting to talk about world building in a non-literary sense. Yeah, or like in a non-kind of entertainment media sense, a mm. non-narrative sense mm. or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, read out any of it because it's it's kind of uh, a little long. Do you have you got links to this? I don't have links to this, but uh, the three, the, the there's three letters, and there were envelopes there where you could take it away to to look at it in your own time. So I actually have uh, a copy of it here. Oh, cool. Oh, that's unfortunate for people listening because it'd be massive copyright infringement to post that up. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure it would. Yeah. Oh, that's, um, that's uh, well, at least we, we could link to his WordPress. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think least. we should throw that in the show notes. Definitely, and, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, so there's, there's interesting... So I'm probably making a lot of table noise here examining this envelope. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's interesting kind of crossovers with the kind of stuff that we talk about because he's made a sort of alternate history and he's also like it's set in the future and i think they the premise is that these these letters from the future are written by someone who's in orbit around a distant star oh wow and it it just like it draws on so many different things so yeah there's a lot of different elements that we can we can talk about here that we've already discussed you know it's it is in in a sense is dealing with science fiction and 
and that kind of thing. It's dealing with alternate history. It's also dealing about sort of 1920s or early 1900s ideas about spirituality and esotericism and possibly like theosophy and that kind of thing. And, you know, that is obviously his impulse. You know, the way he said that black metal can be an impulse or languages can be an impulse. It Mm. seems like this is his. Um, So, yeah, uh, Chris Feitavasilak, or Feitavasilak, I'm not sure how to pronounce his surname. We'll put the link in the show notes anyway. Definitely. um, Maybe Alobius Historical Excerpt 2122 will uh, reappear in another gallery sometime. Right, have we got anything else to discuss? I think that is everything as regards follow-up. Oh, no, we know we have more. We have more. Oh my god, we're an hour. We're an hour recording, and this is only <laughs> follow up. <laughs> no, no, we're only about we're only about fifty minutes recording. We've been an hour on Skype. We, we, we were chatting before we started recording. Oh, we are right, fifty-five minutes recording. <laughs> fifty-five minutes. That's totally, totally acceptable for like the not the main content. So, uh, just a little bit of news in Edgar's life since the last uh, podcast. So, the last time we did the podcast, I was I had just put up the first language video. Yeah. And in the interim, I have put up another two language videos and a short story by an author called Eric Lang. Yes, of course. Yeah, of 30secfantasy.com. And I want to bring this up primarily to thank Eric for working with me because he was super to work with. And also to ask your opinion of something that stems from this. All right. Okay. All right. So I'll link to the, the to uh, Eric's short story, The Object. It'll be in, in the show notes. You should check it out. It's a, it's a great, great story. I don't want to say anything because anything I do say will probably ruin it. There's it's a, really good. It's really good. And there's a special thing that happens. Go, go check it out. But a lot of people, Bill, in the comments were like, you need to do more of these. Wow. And so I'm thinking I might just make that a thing. And I want to know, I want to ask your opinion about that. Like, My opinion or the listener's opinion? Well, everyone's, I suppose. But I want you to give me your opinion right now and then maybe the listeners email me their opinion. Okay. Um, so what, what do you think of the idea of having like a short story segment where I animate an author's work? That's a great idea. You think so? To intersperse between like the tutorial content? I don't see why not. Okay. My setup, right? The thing I'm thinking of is that I would have the authors themselves have them narrate their stories. Yeah. Okay, a good idea, bad idea? Yeah, that's a good idea. You think it's a good idea? All right, cool. Now, If they're not willing to narrate, I can narrate. Yeah, I, I, we, and we also have, we have a mutual friend with a luscious narration voice. Um, do we? Who we do. I'll tell you off air who it is because I don't want to mention any names, but I'm sure he would be willing to help as well. Um, so I have other people. Oh, I think I know who you mean. Yeah, there is only one guy, really. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's one point I want to say. And now the other point that was raised a lot by people was one... Uh, the validity of the short story. Like, do you, would you like the idea of like a one to two minute story every so often or would you want more? I I like the idea of a one to two minute story every so often. Okay, why? Do you mind me asking? Just so I can get in the feel for this. I think it just, it sort of suits Artifexian better. That okay. you know, Artifexian is more about, about world building and then these are like little snapshots of different things you can do rather than in-depth explorations, which I think would take too much time away from the educational content. Okay, that's that that's exactly Personally. that's that's exactly my feeling as well. It's just that there's a lot of people who are like longer. Um, yeah. So I thought like again, I want people on the sub to please, please, please leave a comment and let me know. But I, I'm on the shorter end of things. Mm-hmm. I think I think it will work better. And now the other thing, the last thing is uh, the idea of uh, announcing 
the short story. So a lot of people left comments as well saying that you need to put uh, something at the start saying this is a short story by give us some context when it comes up. Right? Right. What's your opinion on that? Do you think context or not context? Should they be standalone things or do I need to say an introductory thing about them? I think the object works better with you only saying it at the end. Maybe different stories would suit having a, a, a preamble. Okay. But as long, I mean, I think as long as you're, like, as long as you know when you're clicking the video that you're getting a story rather than a, rather than like a, a tutorial, which I think was clear from, from well, it was clear that it wasn't a tutorial because it says the object by Eric Lang in the video description, doesn't it? Well, it, it, says, it says the object pipe and then short story. Oh right, well then, yeah, yeah. And so then, like you credit him at the end, so you know it's not like you've you're like stealing any any recognition or anything. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I thought that was I thought that was context enough. The the just the saying of the sort story. So again, mm. just to ask your opinion on that. And guys, again, let me know in the comments because it'd be nice to do something that everyone's on board with. You know. Yeah, don't be afraid to disagree with us. Especially yeah. Edgar. Yeah, no. <laughs> Email Bill, everyone. <laughs> Email Bill with the reasons you disagree with Edgar. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. If you honestly do disagree with this, like if you think the idea of a short story is just a total waste of time, please let me know. Because yeah, I, no, please do. Yeah, because yeah, I, I like the artifacting thing, as I mentioned before, uh, will only work with sort of community help, you know? Yeah. Um, so totally. I, I need to know what you guys are thinking. And this is the, the subreddit is the perfect platform to do so. Yeah, no, guys, so do, do let us know, you know, you're the community and, you know, this is such a community-driven project and it's market research as well, you know, we don't want to be putting out content that you don't want to hear, so. I do really like the inclusion of we in my videos, but that's okay, your point is okay. <laughs> well, you're always talking about including me more in the brand, obviously uh, the videos are entirely your domain. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. You, I, I feel, sometimes I feel bad actually not having you as a credit at the end of every video. Because there's been a huge amount of videos where we've had a lot of back and forth before I publish a video. So it is almost, we're almost collaborating on a lot of my projects. Ah, uh, hardly now. Ah, uh, well, you're definitely some. Definitely I do, some. I do a bit of proofreading, that's it. I, the colours video. That's the prime example. I think you were responsible for all of the colours video. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, okay. I think after an hour and 12 minutes, we should probably leave follow up here. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, shall we talk about galaxies? Let's talk about galaxies. So, galaxies, Bill. Galaxies. Yeah, so... What's uh, that all about? What's Well, if you want to know what that's all about, I recommend that the listeners pause here and go check out the uh, four galaxy videos on Artifexian, which I will link to in the show notes because we're going to speak about uh, them in a broader context now. Yeah, and they should have been put up on the subreddit in the last few days as well. Yeah, the plan is that we're going to put up uh, what we speak about in terms of videos a little bit before we release the podcast as a sort of kind of like, the podcast is coming sort of thing. Yeah. So check those videos out, otherwise things we say here might not make sense. Okay. Okay, so one thing I want to say about the videos is that I never included any sort of uh, mapping in the videos. I just spoke about like the physical nature uh, of galaxies. Yeah. And I think here would be a uh, nice place to talk about this. Okay, so in terms of mapping, you mean like physically mapping out the shape of the galaxy? 
No, more kind of like how one divides it up into various different sections. Kind of like how one divides up land masses into countries. Okay. So there, uh, from my research on this, there's kind of two ways in which uh, one can map a galaxy. There's the country method of mapping a galaxy where you divide up by political powers in a way. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the Warhammer 40k galaxy. And the other way is to do a more kind of um, maybe rigorous system where you just simply divide it up into geo geometric uh, sections. Okay. Um, they seem... I don't think they're mutually exclusive, though. No, no, but I suppose it's just an aesthetic thing which one you want to yeah. go for. Why well, The Warhammer 40k one looks cooler than, say, Star Trek's quadrants. Yes, Star Trek has the quadrants, but it also has Klingon space and Bajoran space. Yeah, I suppose... Which would be more analogous to the countries. Yeah, I suppose the quadrant thing must be sort of like um, where they all got together and decided this is how we're going to map the entire thing. Mm. I suppose there's two levels going on there. Yeah, you can have two. Exactly, I hadn't, th- hadn't thought of that. I, g- I guess maybe it's something like on maps of Earth, we have the countries and the borders and all that, and we also have latitude and longitude. They're measuring different things, or they're, they're representing different things. That's, that's a really good analogy, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So you can have both at once. Um, I, I will say to people, though, if they are going to divide up into quadrants um, or any sort of segments of a circle, don't do what Star Trek does in, in terms of its naming convention. Because Star Trek has a terrible naming convention. The quadrants go alpha, beta, delta, gamma, going, count, going clockwise around the circle, starting yeah. at the bottom left-hand corner. No, going anti-clockwise, sorry. Yeah. Which is silly because, I mean, like, you know, that means you don't have the alphabetical order correct, you know? Yeah, but it's like you started on a new line, kind of. You went alphabet and then you went on to the next line and went gamma delta instead of keeping it a, a continuous circle. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I would like to advocate, if you are going to do quadrants, I, w- I would like to advocate calling your quadrants 1, 2, 3, and 4 uh, and basing it on Cartesian, the Cartesian plane. And at least in the way maths is taught in the US, I'm not sure if it's like this everywhere, the top right-hand quadrant is 1, the top left-hand quadrant is 2, the bottom left-hand quadrant is 3, and the bottom right-hand quadrant is 4. So if you do it like that, people immediately have some sort of uh, intuitive feel for what's going on. I've never heard that in my life. Yeah, as as we've kind of talked about a little bit, yeah. I don't know, I want to ask the listeners, is this a thing that just exists in the US? Um, Because to be honest, when I was doing school here in Ireland, I never heard that either. But then, now that I've started doing Khan Academy, it comes up all the time. So I I wonder what's going on there, so someone please let me know. Yeah, my my issue with that is, as regards the the Cartesian plane, is that it's, it's completely arbitrary. And I know it make, would make sense to have a degree of arbitrariness for, say, mapping a galaxy or whatever, that something has to be named something. But why could you not just call one positive X positive Y or some name derived from its properties rather than just calling it one? Yeah, because you were saying before it, it gives a sense of primacy as well. Yeah, that, that's that's part of why I don't like it. It's It's just, I don't know, I can't explain it exactly. It just seems kind of silly to me. I see, I don't have that big a problem with it. My main problem with it would be the fact that it's quadrants-like, because, like, a quadrant of a galaxy is huge. And I think... Oh, no, but I'm talking about with regards to the the plane, the Cartesian plane. Oh, you're not talking about the galaxy at all. You're talking about, like, maths. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's... It just, it, it's a really weird convention to me. I would say in a math sense, yes, positive X, positive Y would make more sense. But I think in a, if you were to apply that to galaxies, um, go with something easier like one or yeah. alpha, you know, it's yeah, kind no, of... For, for purposes of actually mapping or naming things, yeah, it does make sense that something has to be given some kind of name. Yeah, yeah, I agree though, I agree, uh, positive X, positive Y is, is, um, is good. Although in a galaxy, you could, like, do something that was arbitrary, like, give it a compass direction, so you'd have the northwest quadrant. Oh, but that's a bit weird, because, like, well, then you gotta start saying, what is north? Yeah, but you're already doing that when you're, when you're mapping things anyway and when you're dividing into quadrants anyway you're already making arbitrary distinctions of where that axis that you're dividing along is and yeah. you said that like in the star trek galaxy the the bottom left is alpha or whatever i mean saying that it's the bottom left one is again still arbitrary yeah that's a fair point yeah i don't know something about north and south seems terrestrial to me Mm. Um, now I'm well aware that like you have like you know the galactic North Pole like I'm well aware that we use these words I don't know I suppose I just uh, part of me thinks that like a civilization that is going to be able to map a galaxy will probably try and do it in a more rigorous sense so I would you know your positive x positive y or just based numerically um, I don't know but that's that's not any more rigorous. It's exactly oh, I know. the same distinctions. You're just using distant vocabulary. Oh, I know. Yeah, it just has a more I don't know more rigorous feel to it. I suppose. Mm. Um, like I totally get that they're both arbitrary. But anyways, like I say, the idea of a quadrant, um, I still think is a bit flawed because it's just too vast, really. You know, that's yeah, like it's too big to be meaningful, and it's going to be too too heterogeneous. Like there's going to be so much different stuff within a quadrant. One could divide up into segments as well. Then you can do something cool. Like you can play, you can put in little Easter eggs, like play with prime numbers or whatever. Um, have like a prime number of segments and that, you know, um, that might be cool. And that mm-hmm. will reduce the area of each of the segments because, yeah, I mean, like an entire quadrant is just... Like, what is it? Hold on, that's... that's uh, a qu- If the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across, um, yeah. that means a quadrant is 50,000 by 50,000 light years. If we were to square it off. Yeah. Like, that is just, that is just too big. <laughs> hold, hold on, so it's 100,000 light years across, so it's pi r squared over 4, so it's, someone do the maths here, 50,000 squared by 3.14 divided by 4. That's really big. <laughs> um, and also, you're not even accounting for thickness there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. And that's another thing that people actually totally forget. They totally forget that galaxies are quite thick. Yeah. How, how thick is the Milky Way at where we are I have no idea you'd have to look it up I'm googling it right now 10,000 10,000 light years it's average thickness is 10,000 light years it's 30,000 light years of the nucleus wow so it's it's probably a little bit less around us oh it definitely is yeah well there you go there's um there's raw data to support the fact that you must take thickness into consideration yeah and that, that is that is a lot that is a big it's and if it's a hundred thousand light years across that means it's it's like 10 percent of that in thickness which is really big yeah it's very very big um, that's like it's like it's kind of the it's the proportions of a biscuit maybe <laughs> that's a very uh like diminished that kind of diminishes the status of a galaxy no dear, but like, dear mr like, galaxy you are effectively a biscuit think of a digestive biscuit that's probably about a tenth as thick as it is broad has are there digestive biscuits in every country there should be 
There should, well, I don't know about that. There should be hobnobs in every country, but you know. Or uh, ginger nuts, my uh, my all time favorite biscuit. Ginger nuts, everyone. Ginger nuts, your favorite? Oh, ginger nuts are the best. Huh. I, I mean, I quite like them. I just didn't expect them to be your your favorite. Oh no! When you dunk them in tea, and then the ginger reacts with the like milkiness. Oh, it's just so. Oh, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Apparently, they're called graham crackers or graham crackers in the states. Oh, are they? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, although graham crackers are typically a little drier and more brittle. Are you googling? Maybe. <laughs> uh, um, oh, drier, drier than a ginger nut. Wow. No, drier than a digestive. Oh, okay, okay, that's f- yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Graham um, crackers are what they call digestives in the states, but they're a little drier and more brittle. Anyhow, let's get back to galaxies. Yeah. <laughs> the point I'm making <laughs> is that that's a, that's a very significant like dimension to, to take into consideration. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I don't think it is taken into consideration that often, really. No. Um, so, yeah, totally. Uh, uh, there's one final point I want to say on this. Uh, it's not really a mapping thing. It's more of a traveling through your galaxy thing. Mm-hmm. In that, at some stage, you're going to need to, the world builder, if he's building on the galactic scale, is going to need to figure out how one orientates themselves in the galaxy. Like, if you're on a spaceship, how you orientate and define how where your direction of travel is okay and i think the best way to do this is probably the star trek way um of having the azimuth elevation angles so what that is is you have two angles that determine the orientation of a spaceship so one angle is going to be about a circle that lies in the galactic plane mm-hmm. and one's going to be about a circle that runs north south along the poles Right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and Star Trek does this all the time. Like, if you ever watch an episode and they go, you know, set a heading or plot a course for 024 Mark 35, what they're right. saying is the first uh, set of digits, 024, is 24 degrees along the galactic plane. And then Mark is the word they use to separate, uh, separate digits, and 35 is 35 degrees along the north south plane. Right. So that's what they're saying. It's not just technobabble, like it's actual, like genuinely works. Okay. Now, is that in relation to the ship itself or is it like a global thing? Right. So Star Trek is really inconsistent about these things. It can be both. You can have a, if you're in relation to the ship, that means you have wherever the ship is facing is zero degrees. Okay. Okay. And you just mark off from there. And then you can also have an absolute uh, heading where the the line between the ship you are on and the center of the galaxy is zero degrees. So you orientate your... No matter where you are in the galactic plane, that's always going to be zero degrees, and you orientate yourself about that. Okay. I think for... I get my head around this in two dimensions. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great little uh, mind exercise. So for, for the, the absolute one, if you, if you say 024 Mark 35 or whatever... And you like and say the same thing on a ship in a different location. Will they end up in the same place? No, no. Okay, okay, no. yeah, no. That, that's I, I was thinking they wouldn't. I think I know what you mean now. So I would advise world builders here because I've tried to um, map based on the directions given in Star Trek to try and find out what's their uh, most consistent method of travel or method of determining travel, uh, and it's not consistent. So I would advise world builders to pick a conceit. To pick a one version of travel and stick with it and don't vary from it. Otherwise, it gets really confusing. 
Right. And I think probably, well, for me anyways, the most intuitive one is the sort of relative heading, where wherever the spaceship is pointing is zero degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's ne- necessarily the best, but you don't need to spend a few seconds thinking about where everything is. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's, it's a tricky one. It, like, because <laughs> I'm not because I'm not used to thinking in two, few dimensions like this. <laughs> I was always terrible at flying games when I was a kid. You know, like when you like had games where you'd like have a spaceship or have a plane or whatever. Really? I was really bad at them. Yeah. Is that because you don't understand three dimensions, or just I'm I'm does one I'm need to okay understand? with the concept of three dimensions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, because like I'm I'm pretty good at like spatial stuff in general. Right. And and like puzzles and and objects that involve puzzles and things but something about something about flying i've always found tricky really yeah i actually thinking about it i quite like the absolute system because you can also use that as a means of locating places if you have two angles and a distance then you can select any place right that's very true but you could make it easier and just use cartesian coordinates to find a place yeah I would I find the, the Cartesian coordinates slightly easier to understand. The fact that it's in a, a sort of a roughly circular kind of system makes me prefer the kind of the polar. Yeah? Yeah. That's 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 a fair point. Um, I would still come down on the Minecraft coordinate systems a little bit easier. Mm. And also because c- it's dynamic. Because it's it's a rotating system, it seems to make more sense to, to use polar. I don't know why, that doesn't really make any sense now I've said it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It seems, I, it seems like the angle one is a more kind of like educated grown-up version of things <laughs> and then the cartesian one is kind of like anyone can understand it but there you go there's two ways of plotting course and uh how one places objects in the galaxy so yeah great cool will we move on let's move on what's next on our agenda let's look at uh the star wars galaxy for a bit star wars star right. wars do you, what do you know about the star wars galaxy bill um it is full of aliens it is. Who all have, they each have just got one profession, except there's always one member who's a Jedi. <laughs> this, this is very true. Anything else you know about the Star, uh, the Star Wars galaxy? It's far away. It, I dispute that, but okay. That's part of the basic premise. Uh, I, I still dispute it. You'll see in a second. I have valid grounds to dispute that, but go on. Um, the core is heavily inhabited. Corsquint is the capital, and that's in the core somewhere. Okay. Um, that's about it. The the Yuzhang Vong are from outside the galaxy. Jesus, who are the Yuzhang Vong? Oh, they, they crop up in like the later novels. They're aliens who aren't at all affected by the Force, and they don't like they, they don't have any midichlorians whatsoever. So the Force can't affect them, and they can't be detected by it. Oh, um, oh I, didn't, I didn't know that at all. And yeah, no, I just read this from like browsing Wikipedia. While we're while we're recording a podcast, yeah, not while recording podcasts, just <laughs> over over many years of of internet boredom. <laughs> that, that's about it. I mean, I don't really know much else to it. About so, it. so the Star Wars galaxy is, in terms of like physical characteristics, is it, pretty dull. It's a spiral galaxy. It's a spiral galaxy. Yeah. it's slightly bigger than our galaxy. Okay, it's twenty thousand light years bigger ish, give or take. Um, it's the same age as our galaxy, roughly. And it is, uh, I suppose not everyone noticed, it's orbited by six companion galaxies. Oh, cool. And I think they come into play in the expanded universe. I think there's a bit of interplay between them. I'm, I'm not, I'm not 100, sure, uh, 100% sure of that. 
And the, the companion galaxies are bigger things than the Magellanic clouds, right? Oh, I don't or, know about size. I have no okay, idea about size. I'm, I'm, are the Magellanic clouds companion galaxies, or are they something yeah, that's like of a yeah. different class? I would imagine that the six companion galaxies are equivalent to the Magellanic clouds. Okay. And then it's also orbited by about 200 plus globular clusters. Okay, yeah, so, I, I confused those two. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty like it's pretty cool. It's a bit unimaginative, but I suppose Star Wars doesn't hinge upon great galactic world building. It's more about all the aliens and their one profession, you know. Yeah. From my own looking at it from various sources, I reckon if you've watched the videos, you'll understand what this means. I reckon it's an SB or an SC galaxy, so spiral B class and spiral C class, and um, that kind of d- determines the morphology of it. Okay. I just want to put it in there because I spent a lot of time looking at these things. I just want to you know, <laughs> prove that my time isn't wasted. So then it's broken up into various regions. This is kind of like, I suppose this kind of is a weird cross between what we already spoke about, between the quadrant sort of system and the political system, like mm-hmm. arbitrary versus political powers, in that it's broken up into about 10 separate regions that radiate out from the core. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to list them all, but you have like deep core, then you have the colonies and like... You mean they're concentric? They're concentric, exactly. Well, roughly okay. concentric, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of like, it's mixed between political and arbitrary, I think. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that's another way of thinking about it. And then throughout the galaxy, um, you have hyperspace trade routes, which allow for like super fast travel across the galaxy. Okay. So I suppose sort of equivalent to the wormhole in, in Star Trek. Um, because the space travel is a lot different in the galaxy in Star Wars. Because their their like warp drive capabilities are so far beyond Star Trek, it's ridiculous. Yeah, because I did the maths on this bill again, and it stated somewhere that it takes uh, sixteen hours to get from Alderaan to Coruscant. Okay, which is a five thousand light year trip. Trip, and then extrapolating and applying that to the whole galaxy, it looks like you could probably get from one end of the galaxy to the other in something like a month perhaps, which is silly, which is really silly. Can I advocate for world builders to respect the awesome scope of galaxies? Hold on, but it's it's 120,000 light years across, right? Yeah. So divide 120 by 5, and you've got 24. So 24 by 16 is going to be less than a month. Yeah, I rounded up. It's, it's going to be 16 days. Yeah, I, it's well, I got 17 days. Uh, I rounded yeah. up to a month. Because, you see, there's not hard, um, they're not hard facts. Because the trip from Alderaan to Coruscant, apparently you have to take some sort of deviating route because there's some sort of, like, gravity well in the way. So it's not a straight line sort of thing. So allowing, oh, for, okay. allowing for errors, round up to a month. It's something on the order of days, anyways. So, so you can't just, like, hyper-jump anywhere along any route. Or that... You, you can, but so, certain routes are faster. Yeah, I think so. I think some of them, uh, some routes are a bit convoluted to get around stuff. Because I, I, the idea, I think, is that if you come to a gravity well, it, like, sucks you out of hyperdrive. Right. I think that's the idea. Feel free to correct me, internet. Uh, so you have to, like, try and bypass these uh, these gravity wells or massive stars or nebulae and things like that. Okay. Okay, now, you mentioned, this is, this is the, the only reason I want to talk about Star Trek is this next point, really. Or Star Wars, should I say, is this next point. You mentioned that the galaxy is far, far away. I only said far once. Okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, far away, right? Right. Um, there is 
some data to suggest that the Star Wars galaxy is in fact Andromeda. Andromeda's pretty far away, man. Yeah, but like, it's not that far away, to be fair. <laughs> okay, so can I go... Th- this is a theory I found on a site called debate.org. I'm very interested to hear this. Yeah, I, I made, this immediately caught my eye. I'll see what you think about it. I, I like it. I'm converted. We'll see what you think. Okay, so it all starts, Bill, with the movie E.T. Oh, dear. Okay. Oh, do you not like E.T.? Not really. Okay, all right. You don't need to like it. You just Have you watched it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in the tagline, the, like on the movie poster for E.T., Mm-hmm. It says he's afraid. He's totally alone. He's three million light years from home. Right. Okay. Now, three million light years from the Milky Way is roughly Andromeda. Andromeda is about two point six, two point seven. Okay. Allowing for rounding up here, you know, error and things like that. Et could be from Andromeda. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. That makes sense. Cool. Now. Uh, sticking with E.T. for a second, do you remember the scene where it's it's Halloween time and he's out on the streets and he's wearing a costume? Vaguely. Okay, so he's out on the streets wearing a costume, right? So he can actually go outside and because of time of year, it doesn't really matter if he uh, is seen as an alien because it's Halloween. But he's out in the streets and there's loads of kids running around doing trick-or-treating and he sees one kid dressed as Yoda. Okay, yeah. and he gets really excited and points at Yoda and goes home, home, home. So right. perhaps he he recognized this face. Yeah, now, or at least the species. Or at least the species, exactly. Now, skip forward to the episode one of Star Wars. And you know all the scenes where they're in the Galactic Senate? I haven't seen episode one. Yeah, don't. It's terrible. But but I'm pretty sure this those scenes. I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to talk about, and I think it's in three. Is it in three? Oh, I thought it was in one. Okay, go on anyway. I'll it see is, if we're talking about the same thing. It is in a one of the the new Star Trek movies. A Star yeah. sorry Star Wars. God, I'm going to get this so wrong every time. Don't kill me, internet. Um, so. In the Galactic Senate, you have, like, all the different aliens are representing. They all have their little pods. Yeah. And it is clear that there is a pod dedicated to, to the E.T. species. And mm. they're even named in the backstory. I can't remember their names. So, extrapolating, one could make the argument that Andromeda is, in fact, a Star Wars galaxy. Okay. I mean, it's it's not implausible. Yeah, it's not, well, yeah I, it, I think it's pretty solid like <laughs> i mean th- there's there's a lot of other factors you can take into account here like well how long ago is is star wars meant to be okay oh, oh this is true can can i can i bang on about nerdy stuff on this will i be able to stop you <laughs> not a chance okay so Given the given this revelation, okay, someone was like, "Hang on, wait." So these are two physical places. We can link certain things that happen in both places in the Star Wars universe and in Andromeda and find the time scale. Yeah. Okay. People did this, okay, and it turns out that Anakin Skywalker, all right, became Dark Vader on the fifteenth of November, two million five hundred ninety-eight thousand one hundred forty-six BC. Which I think is just so cool. <laughs> How? Based on what? Uh, based on, I think in the lore, there is uh, some mention of a massive supernova. And uh, they describe it, and it fits with the description of a known supernova in Andromeda. 
So basically, they just link those two and then work backwards. As in, it happened at the, on the same day? Yeah. Right. Which I think is... Just, I love the way people on the internet are willing to dedicate time to this. I think that's fantastic. It made me so happy. And I don't even care if it's flawed. Like, it may well be flawed. That's great. I just think it's awesome. I've got a, a couple of... Not exactly rebuttals, but just other points to consider. Go for it. Okay, so let's take that as a reasonable timescale. Two million years. Um... Actually, no. Well, that that's kind of that's kind of begging the question, isn't it? What I'm saying is, if even if it is the same species as as ET that you see in the Galactic Senate, they could he could be coming from somewhere else. If they if you know if this was a long long time ago and that that species is still extant, he could be coming from a different galaxy. Uh, he could have gone to Andromeda, or the species could be in Andromeda, and that's where he came from. But that doesn't mean the Star Wars universe is the same one. They might have gone to Andromeda after their portrayal in Star Wars. Oh, okay, so you're so the there's a possibility that ET originated in a different galaxy and they've they've migrated into the Star Wars galaxy. No, migrated into Andromeda. Uh, yeah, migrated into Andromeda. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, um, that's a very valid point. Yeah, that that's very true. There's also like, there's a million different ways of destroying this um, postulate. You can also say that ET gets really excited when he sees. Just something that isn't human. Like, no connection to another species at all. You know? Yeah. He just doesn't... He, he sees something that's not, like, a big sack of water, a big pink sack of water, and it's kind of like, dude, this is... I like you. I like you. There is something about, about Star Wars toys in, in that film, though, isn't there? Like, he's playing with a Luke Skywalker. The kid is, at one point. I think... Uh, I could be wrong again, but I think I remember reading in passing that there was a discussion between Spielberg and Lucas... Uh, at some stage, about how to put in these little Easter eggs. I think this was a planned thing. Yeah. I'm not sure if the timeline works out there, but I'm I'm pretty sure I read that. So, yeah. I'm going to be honest. I actually get really kind of um, tired of Easter eggs like this. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, it's because I was reading this. Uh, there's this one show. I think it's, it's St. Elsewhere. Okay. And that was full of allusions to, to loads of other TV shows. And I think the the revelation at the end was that the entire TV show, it was set in a hospital, and the entire show, you find out at the end, had actually taken place in the mind of a sick child in the hospital. Okay. And because of the the way it had overlapped with all of the other shows, and it became a sort of a, a, an in-joke among creatives and showrunners and things, there's this whole thing on the internet about proving that every other show is actually just in the mind of this child from St. Elsewhere. And I just find it really tiresome. <laughs> so you're okay with the concept of Easter eggs. It's just this sort of bashing yeah, like, of Easter eggs. Yeah, just like appreciate them for what they are. They're Easter eggs. And I, I, I just, I don't know. I think overextending them in, into grand theories is just a little, I don't know. I find it a little dull. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah, don't don't overdo it. Well, like anything in life, you know, don't overdo things. There's um, a nice one in Battlestar Galactica. You've watched Battlestar Galactica, haven't you? Uh, this is the remake, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a nice one in Battlestar Galactica, though, uh, in the fleet. I don't know how, how much you see it through the series, but certainly at the start, in the fleet, there is a Firefly-class ship. Oh, is there? Yeah. But, is, but Firefly happened way after, didn't it? Nope. Did not? How old is Firefly? Firefly finished in like 2002 or 2003 and Battlestar Galactica started in 2003. Oh, wow. I yeah. I, I didn't know that. Jesus, wow. Firefly's huh. like 15 years old. 
That is mental. <laughs> that is crazy. For some reason, I had in my head that this is totally new. Uh, I haven't watched Firefly, so I don't know uh, at all. Oh, really. I thought you had. Sorry. No, oh, no, no. Yeah, we've, we've discussed this loads. No, you haven't, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've 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 watched it just recently. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I plan on watching it after I finish Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. Don't watch Voyager. I need to watch Voyager just to see what it's about. Like that's so bad. <laughs> I live with um, people in in Dublin who are adamant that Voyager is the greatest Star Trek. Uh, And they they will, I think, be quite angry if I don't at least attempt to watch Voyager. Oh, well, this is a discussion for another day. Yeah, yeah. With with Voyager on another day. This is true. We could could bring back Edgar's uh, Trek segment. Yeah. (laughs) Trek car. But uh, anyhow, so what you call it? Uh, that's that's kind of what I wanted to say about the Star Wars Galaxy. It's it's a little bit boring in terms of physical makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit unrealistic in how they travel across it. And I know it's fiction and all, but like they kind of don't even uh, like the scope is. There's no reason for the scale of of a galaxy there. Yeah. You know. Well, this is brings me back to what I said in the first episode, in exactly, episode zero, yeah. that. It may as well be an ocean. It may as well be a story about brave pirates fighting an evil colonial empire. Exactly. So I think if you are going to use a galaxy, like, you know, do do what Star Trek does. And you know the, where um, Voyager gets trapped out in the Delta Quadrant? Yeah. Like, that's a 75-year th- trip home. Like, that is a long time. And it makes you, re- like, even just those words make you think, God, that's a big place, that galaxy, you know? Again, you could tell that same story if you got blown off course, you know, rounding Tierra del Fuego and you had to cross the Pacific in the Indian Ocean to get back to Europe. Yeah, but never never at that sort of timescale, though. You know? Eh, how long does Voyager take? A few years? No, isn't it? It's a 75-year trip. Yeah, it doesn't actually take that long on the show, though. Oh, I haven't watched it, you see. All right. I only know about it. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, they... Ah, oh, did it... Uh, wait, I don't want to ask this, do I? Uh, ask no. him. I, I may or may not answer. Okay, I'll ask, but don't spoil things for me, okay? okay? I won't. Um, do they make it home? I can't remember exactly. Okay, all right. I, I, don't, I don't think I actually finished watching the series. You just couldn't stick it, no? Pretty much, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really hope they don't make it home. That would be brilliant. They spend all it, it their effort. Be a, it, would be a, it would be a cool ending, actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Here's hoping. In any case, so, Star Wars Galaxy, sorry, to summarise one more time, a bit boring physically, a bit unrealistic in terms of scope, if you're going to have a galaxy, maybe try and, you know, bring that sort of awe, that vastness of space, you know, you should bring, and that's that's essentially it on the Star Wars Galaxy. Now, can we look at the Star Trek Galaxy? Yes, a fictional version of our galaxy. A fictional version of our galaxy, exactly. Which do you prefer, Bill? If you were making a um, galactic fiction... Or writing mm. a galactic fiction, would you go for you know the Milky Way in a very distant future, or would you go make up an entire galaxy from scratch? I'd probably make a new one. Why? More specifically, why not stick with you know the Milky Way? Because then I'm I will be tied to like real things, and I know there's a lot of variation out there, but I just I'd rather have the freedom to to create things kind of from the ground up. Yep, that's I. I think I would do the same. There is something cool though about like, you know, if I don't know if a particular episode of Star Trek happened on uh, I don't know Tau Centi or a planet yeah. orbiting Tau Centi, that you can kind of look up in the sky and go, "That's that star." Yeah, no, that's that's cool. That's cool. I mean, I, I do like the fact that 
Wolf 359 is a real place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it depends on the story I wanted to tell. I mean, obviously, there's great stories you could tell in a future version of the galaxy. But I think for, for most purposes, you know, all other things being equal, I'd rather create a new one and, and explore things that way. And then, like, like we kind of discussed off air a bit, when one creates a new one, one can use any morphology they want. Mm. And then that can lead to greater, great, uh, greater creative freedom. So Definitely. the reason the reason why I bring up the Star Trek galaxy is one point and one point alone because like if you want to know about the Star Trek galaxy, Google the Milky Way, you know. <laughs> um, but at one point is I just want to talk about how they um, they do warp in the Star Trek universe. Okay. And again, I apologize to people if I'm confusing Star Wars and Star Trek. It's very hard to to get it exactly right. Okay, so you know, don't kill me here. So. Like we pointed out in the Star Wars galaxy, hyperspace is like this crazy fast thing. And I don't think they have done the maths with it. I don't think there's a formula governing governing how fast they go. Right. Whereas in Star in the Star Trek universe, they have. Which is great. So that means they actually have like constraints on where they can travel and how fast they can do it. So the formula, there's two formulas. This is gonna get a bit mathsy here, guys. But there's two formulas. One from the original series and one from the next generation. Mm-hmm. In the original series, your velocity is equal to your warp factor cubed times the speed of light. Okay. All right. Very, very simple. So when What's they say about? in Star Trek, when they say go to warp two, so that's two cubed because that's the warp factor two, two cubed times speeds of light. So that means you're going eight times the speed of light. Yeah. Very simple. So it, it, it scales exponentially. And uh, just in case anyone's unaware, you cannot hit 10 normally. You know, when Q steps in and does something stupid, then yes, you can. But normally you can't hit warp 10. You can only ever get infinitely close to warp 10. Why is that? Um, I think it's just a, a restraint they set up. Okay, that that's just like it's another sort of... Um physical law within within the context of the universe. Yeah, and okay. I think it's something to do with, like, it would take infinite energy to speed up past warp, warp 10 and then equals MC squared and something like that. Right. Which so is good. set the bar for relativity a little bit higher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, okay. Which is good, though, because otherwise you can go, oh, you know, crank up the engines to warp 50, and then you do what Star Wars does, and you're over the other side of the galaxy in, you know, 10 days. Yeah. You know, it's good that they have this, like, thing. So, it actually, you know, their journeys, like, take a believable, and I use that word, like, loosely, a believable amount of time. Mm-hmm. And in the next generation, they updated it slightly. I don't know why they updated it slightly, but they did. Velocity is equal to the warp factor to the power of 10 over 3 times the speed of light. So, it's slightly faster. So, it's slightly faster. Yeah, slightly faster. Um, yeah. I, I have no idea why they did that. But that's but they did. So, dear world builder, if you are building a galaxy and you have all the physical things set up, and now you're wondering about how to travel around it, I would use those equations. I think they're really handy, and uh, you can really easily get a sense of scale and distance. I quite like that they changed them, though. That's because things like that do change. Then they might have updated the terminology in the seventy years between original series and next generation, or however long it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's kind of like a living mm. universe. Although yeah. I, I still want to check, maybe it was follow- probably done accidentally, like. But <laughs> yeah, well, this, like we said about the Star Trek um, world, so much of it is just you know hand wavium. Yeah, and then post hoc justifications for it. Exactly, I think that's probably what happened to the quadrant system, though. 
Oh, yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, exactly. So World Builder planned these things from the start. There you go. That's all I want to say about Star Trek Galaxy, Bill. Cool. I just want to bring up the thing about speed. Yeah? I'm trying to think of other examples of things that use our galaxy except in the future. Um, I'm sure th- I'm sure there's there's millions of them. Yeah, I'm sure as well. There's also a couple of um, works of fiction that use the like, Magellanic Clouds. Um, really? What fiction escapes me? I'm going to completely take a stab out in the dark here, but I think Niven has something in the Magellanic Clouds. But I'm running. Uh, I'm running the risk of being one hundred percent wrong. I don't. I don't think known space is that big anyway. Maybe, maybe the later books go go out that far, but I, I don't think. We'll throw the link in the show notes because yeah. there's a Wikipedia page on. I think it's fiction set in other galaxies. Um, a link to this. Uh, I think it's Niven. There's at least one Ian Banks book which does. I think I mentioned this in the last episode actually. Uh, which book is this? Player of Games. You did mention Player of Games. Do yeah, you want to fill me in again on this? The main character takes a trip to uh, civilization, uh, this kind of horrific, barbaric empire that is based in the Magellanic Clouds. Was essentially it. Oh, cool. Very good. Yeah. Very good. And it takes a long time to get there because of the the void in between without the without any kind of mass in it. There's an actual like proper void. Whatever way he justifies his ships working, they, they need to have mass around them to achieve high speeds. So it takes a long time to get out there. So do you know about the Fermi Paradox, Bill? I'm familiar with the concept. I don't know the the exact thing, but it's it's essentially... If life arises and the universe is so big, how come we haven't seen aliens? Exactly, that's exactly it. With all the stars out there and all the planets and all the time we've had for life to develop... Where are all the aliens? That's right. essentially it. And we obviously haven't answered that because we haven't uh, found any aliens. And I think trying to speculate as to why we haven't found any aliens can really inform how one builds a galaxy. Yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting concept. I would advise anyone to go read about it. I'll throw a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page. And I will also throw a link to a Kurzgesagt video on the Fermi Paradox because it's very good. Kurzgesagt. Kurzgesagt. German for kind of like in a nutshell. Short saying. Short saying, exactly, yeah. Um, I think they're based in Germany, but it's all in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so check that out and try and think about why there aren't any aliens, dear listener. And that will inform how you build. Why do you think there's no aliens, Bill? Why haven't we come across any? Yeah, why, have, why do we see no aliens? There may well be loads of them, but why don't we see any? Because space is really big. Or put another way, do you think there's aliens out there? I mean, probably. Space is really big. Like, <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, I... I'd be very surprised if, you know, nowhere in all the vastness of space that there wasn't something that we would recognize as life. I would be very surprised too. Uh, I am glad there are no aliens. Well, we don't see any aliens. We haven't interacted with them. I think interacting with aliens would be literally the worst thing possible. Really? Yeah. So for me, if I was writing some sort of galactic fiction, the whole like um, point of the story would be this conflict with meeting other alien races and a philosophical debate as to whether or not one should engage with aliens. Right. Because I just think it's all around the bad idea. I think that trying to like send signals to them is bad. I think, you know, making our place known in the universe is bad. It's just nothing good can come of it in my mind. 
Hmm. Yeah, because and I suppose the, the the reason why I think this is if we look at like the history of Earth, any time any sort of like uh, foreigners in quotes have met another like uh, race or another peoples, it's always ended in either war or disease um, or whatever. But it always ended in death for a lot of people. I don't know if it's true that any time that happened is the case. Okay, but when, so when the English came over to Americas. Yeah. Like rampant disease. Yeah, okay, that, that's that's a separate situation. And I'm not saying that it didn't happen a lot. I'm saying that I don't think it was like every time two populations encountered that it ended badly for everyone. Okay, fair enough. But I think if we are to meet an alien race, I think there's a very high probability our immune system mightn't be able to deal with their diseases. And everyone dies. They might die. We might die. I don't think so at all. Really? We wouldn't be no. at all worried. I mean, obviously there could be bad things that happen, but I, 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 would I get diseases from them? Like, how would we get diseases from them? Well, they, they, like, they need to be like so similar to us for there to be a chance to be compatible diseases. You think? Um, yeah. Like, no. think of all the diseases that like dogs get that we don't you know yeah but then the same thing you can think of all the diseases that other species get like not necessarily dogs that we get yeah but come on this is stuff that has grown up like with an entirely different biological and biochemical history like if it's if it's going to be truly alien life it's going to be properly alien but what but why 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 would it even have have like a, a biochemistry that we could meaningfully interact with I think there's probably a great there's a great possibility that if we do find aliens, they will be like very like us. It seems like the elements that form life seem to be kind of just good at that, you know. So if they probably will be, you know, carbon based, yeah, they, might, they might be carbon based, but will they have like double helical DNA? I think I wouldn't take the risk. You know, I wouldn't take the risk blindly shouting out into the dark. I think a good analogy is this, right? It's Im- imagine we as Earthlings are in a jungle. Right. Okay. And every time like SETI sends out a signal to the cosmos, you know, you know, saying, dear aliens, come, you know, we are here. It's kind of like us standing in the jungle, shouting out into the darkness and then going, well, wouldn't it be great when the tigers come? You know? Like, yeah, I am very I, fearful of alien contact. Like, really fearful. I think it would be the coolest thing ever. I think it's something that we probably will have to do if they are, they are out there. Like, it would, be, it would be a great shame if we just said, you know, no, we're not going to interact with you at all. But I think the interaction will be dangerous. Very dangerous. And that's aside from warfare and, you know, taking over and uh, things like that. I know the whole thing fills me with awful dread. Oh, so I, I really don't think we'd catch diseases from them. Huh. There you go. There's something to follow up. I might look into, uh, I might look into that. I know, I know some scientists have uh, raised that concern, and I think I've written papers on it, because I think it, it is a real concern. In any case, Bill, I would, if I was writing some sort of galactic fiction, I probably wouldn't write galactic fiction. I'd, like, keep it to a solar system level because of mm-hmm. my personal feelings about aliens. <laughs> Um, so that's the importance of answering this Fermi paradox for yourself uh, to inform your work. Can I digress very slightly for a moment? That is what this podcast is all about. When I was about 10 years old, mm-hmm. we had... What, what English books did you have in school? 
Did you have ones that were like, a, did you start out with like a Huggy Bear and stuff in Junior Infants? Oh man, I can't remember what happened last week. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> when I was about 10, one of the workbooks we, we were doing English from had this little essay in it that we had to answer questions on. And it was about a scientist or a doctor or someone who wondered why someone in Berlin and someone in New York might catch the same illness on the same day. And he was like, isn't that really strange? I wonder why that is. Maybe Earth goes through clouds of bacteria in space, and that's why two people so far apart can catch the same illness. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it strikes me as completely unfounded, but yeah. Like, it's interesting that they think that way. <laughs> but, like, it's so, it's such patent nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, 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 you never heard of just, like, a coincidence. Like,. <laughs> I, like, millions of people catch colds every day. Like, why would someone in Berlin not catch it the same day someone in New York did? Could it be that said author was writing to try and engage the children's imagination a little bit? No, that wasn't the way it read to me when I was 10, anyway. Okay, because, I mean, like, if we look at fiction, we can just go, well, that's patent nonsense, you know? But it, was, it wasn't presented as a work of fiction. It was, it was presented as, like, a, an essay about this historical character. Who isn't real. I don't know. I, it was written as though he was. Okay. It'll be interesting to see if I can find that. Um, yeah. It strikes me as utter nonsense. Like do you, like you say, there's Occam's razor, you know? The simplest solution is probably the one that it is. Coincidence. Yeah. And I was really annoyed, and I couldn't express what, like, I couldn't express what annoyed me so much about it. And it was like, I think one of the questions in the workbook was, can you think of any other reason that two people might get might get a disease on the same day? And I was like, well... Coincidence! <laughs> yeah, you know, you know the meme. You know uh, History Channel. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know the aliens guy. The aliens guy with the funny hair. Yeah. You know the meme where it's just like aliens cause. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's so good. I just that immediately springs my mind. Just put, yeah, actually, that's very appropriate here, isn't it? Put a meme there for answering that question. Um, but anyhow. So the Fermi Paradox. Fermi Paradox. And there's loads of other different solutions. Like, for example, we could be just alone. Like, that's one. And that might inform how you write your fiction in space. We could be, uh, like, products of a simulation. Someone is running a simulation and we just happen to be the only inhabitants of said simulation. Which I find... That's the same as the first one, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I just find... <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I just find the premise a little bit interesting. Because I suppose that sort of thing engages with what is God, you know? And it gauges with, like, a creator figure and how we define creator yeah. figures and things like that. So that could be an interesting thing. io9, the website, uh, did a big write-up on, on the most bizarre solutions to the Fermi Paradox. It's worth checking out. There's a lot of ideas to be sourced from there. There's a couple of related concepts. Oh, like what? Uh, the Drake Equation. Oh, yes. Um, what is this? Uh, this is This is the thing, the probability of there being life, is it? Yeah. Now, as far, like as far as I'm concerned, it's it's kind of meaningless. It's kind of ridiculous because it's it's basically every number that's in it you're gonna have to pull out of your ass. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, right. There's there's no rigor to it whatsoever. But that's kind of it might be another thing worth considering as a creative impetus. Yeah, and definitely. The other one is um, wait, no, hold great on. Filt- Sorry, one? no. Before you go on, could what you could do uh, the opposite of the Drake equation. Like, if you're in a galaxy, this might be total nonsense, but if you're in a galaxy and it is known that there are a ton of aliens everywhere, like in the Star Wars galaxy. Yeah. And you are, say, wanting to venture into some uncharted region, you could run an opposite of Drake equation to determine what's the probability of not finding them. Because if you're like me, you don't want to find them. You want to find empty space to colonize. 
the probability of finding them and the probability of not finding them is just they're just the opposite of each other. Yeah, but the the, there's a different there's a different intent in why the equation is there. Yeah. You know, like in our universe, we have yes. it there to you know to want to find aliens, but in another uh, in another galaxy, it could be exactly the opposite. And but you see, at least with that situation, you're starting off with where you know that there are other aliens, there is other life. With the Jake equation as it stands, you have no prior figures to build on. Exactly, it's, it's purely speculative. Like yeah, exactly. But like you say, it can be really great for uh, creative impetus. Yeah, totally. So that's one thing, and the other one is. I believe it's the Great Filter. Now, it's been a while since I... I'm just going to Google this right here now. It's been a while since okay. I've read this stuff, but it's um, it's in the context of the the Drake equation. Like, if, you, if, you, if you're presenting the Fermi Paradox as the, the talking point, the Great Filter is why we haven't met the other aliens or why we're not seeing anything else. What is the thing that stops them? Yeah, isn't that integral to the Fermi Paradox? Isn't that part of the discussion? Oh, I thought it was like a closely connected thing rather than being integral. Possibly it is. It is integral. Okay, well, I, I don't know. I'm basing this again off the Kurzgesagt video. They go into discussion mm. about great filters. No, I'm looking here. It, the concept originates from the economist Robin Hansen. Oh, there you go. Huh? Yeah. From so 1998, want, so a good bit later than the Fermi Paradox. Do you want to describe this concept of great filters? Well, just uh, the great filter is the thing that is stopping us from seeing them or stopping them from being available to be seen. Right. Do you want to speculate as to what a great filter might be? Um, In your opinion. Obviously, this is not fact and we're just speculating. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it could be that... Hmm, like, give me a moment to think about this. I've got one great example from, from fiction, but let me think about this for a moment. Um, All right. While you're thinking, can I give you my thing? Yeah. Right. You know what the great filter is? What? Rampant disease when two aliens meet each other. <laughs> I mean, it could be something like they, they, like they wipe each other out before getting there. Yeah, there's a what's called they reach a technological singularity and they just just destroy themselves. I think that's I think that is literally one of the great filters. I mean, I, I think a technological singularity would do the opposite, but that's no, just me. My favorite one from fiction, anyway, is from Ultimate Marvel. Okay, we all know how much you love the Marvel comics. No, hold on. <laughs> Are you afraid to what I was saying earlier about the shared universe? Yes. No, I, I, I quite like early Ultimate Marvel stuff because it, it started afresh and it was it was quite well integrated. And as it got on, it got a bit stupid, but it was it was quite well integrated at the start. Okay, um, backtracking, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, fight me in real life. <laughs> in in one storyline within Ultimate Marvel. The Great Filter is Galactus. Oh, um, is Galactus a kind of like an omnipotent sort of like all-knowing, all-powerful thing? No. Okay. Uh, he's so you know in the regular Marvel comics he's like a, a huge dude who eats planets, and he, like he's literally a giant person. Oh, hang on, is is he's literally a giant person? He is. He's this huge dude. <laughs> is is um? I don't know very much about the Marvel comics. Is that what the Silver Surfer storyline in one of the movies is about? That he comes to Earth to scout it for Galactus. Yeah, Silver Surfer is the herald of Galactus. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Cool. No, cool, I didn't cool. watch that film because I don't particularly like the Fantastic Four, and I think Galactus turns up like in a few frames at the end, and then they defeat him, which is stupid because he's like the coolest thing in the Marvel universe. <laughs> that's just me. Um, um, so what, hold on, why why are we bringing up a Galactus again? I lost my train of thought there. So in in Ultimate Marvel, in the Ultimate Galactus trilogy, 
it's proposed that Galactus is the great filter by, by Reed Richards. He's like, well, you know, here's the Fermi paradox. For some reason, we're not seeing all the aliens and the figures say that we should. So there's something stopping us from seeing them. What is that? Oh, crap. Maybe it's Galactus because Galactus is bearing down on them at the time. Yeah, that's right. So Galactus eats planets before people get to, before aliens get out to spread through the galaxy. Which is kind of like, I'm with Galactus on this. You know, get, <laughs> get rid of the enemy before you get all their diseases. Um, so that, that's, that's the, my, my personal favorite example of a great filter. But that's another thing worth considering as well. You know, when you're, when you're writing, you know, consider the Fermi paradox, then consider the Drake equation and consider those uh, factors that he proposes and then consider what might great filters be, what might be the things stopping people. Yeah. It's a great impetus for a story. Like it, I said, you know, it's, it could be a Galactus. It could be some overbearing alien race that's stopping anyone else from getting out or whatever. Exactly. Like uh, a great filter is in like, by definition, uh, an area of conflict, yeah. you know, so, and, and stories need conflict. So great filters, definitely. That's, that's a great idea. The, uh, can I give a brief mention? It's not really connected. Well, I suppose it is connected to what we're talking about. Can I give a brief mention to the Kardashev scale or Kardashev? Yes. It's, am I pronouncing that right? Kardashev. I think it's Kardashev. Yeah. There you go. Um, so what this is, this is just a scale that determines how advanced a, civ- a civilization is. And again, it's useful when thinking in terms of like galaxy building because you like it's nice to try and populate your galaxy with civilizations that are not all the same. They're not all homogenous. They have different levels of technological advancement. Yeah. So just really quickly to run through it, it's pretty boring doing a list, but I'm just, just to make sure everyone knows what I'm on about, you have potentially five types, and they're called type one to type five. Uh, we are, we are, we as humans are a 0.73 on the scale, okay? At type one, someone, when someone becomes a one, that's a civilization that can harness the entire power of one's home planet, a type 2 can harness the power of a star, so like with Dyson spheres and things like that. A type 3 can harness the power of a galaxy, so like a, an omnipotent sort of galactic civilization. A type 4 can harness the power of an entire supercluster, and a type 5 can harness the power of an entire universe. I think after 3, Kardashev originally approached the, the first 3, didn't he? And then the 4 and 5 are extensions from other writers. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. adding them on just for the sake of completion. But yes, the original yeah. scale is 1 to 3. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of cool. I mean, like you can kind of uh, see these various types in action in the Star Trek universe, I think. Um, right. Because, I mean, like, there's a like a definite technological difference between, between, say, the likes of the Federation and, say, the wormhole aliens that built the wormhole. Yeah. And then from the perspective of the Federation, these guys are like like gods, like literally gods on Bajor. Um, yeah. So they would be considered like a type three, like ones that have the potential to affect things on a galactic scale. Yeah. Well, they'd be certainly approaching. approaching yeah, cer- certainly approaching. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas what would the Federation be? I'm assuming the Federation would be like a, a two. Yeah, they'd, they'd be probably again between two and three, but lower, lower and two. Lower than Although, no, yeah. can they actually, can they really, I don't think they'd have the capability to build a Dyson Sphere. Yeah, you see, nothing's ever mentioned about, like, uh, the energy and things like that, but... Like, there, there, is, know. there is a Dyson Sphere encountered in one episode, but it's, it's, it's not built by the Federation. It's kind of a, an old anomaly. I'd imagine, though, like, there's been, throughout the series, there's been, like, a couple of things about, like, you know, mining an entire planet and things like that. I'm sure it's not that 
big a leap that they can, you know, harness the resources of an entire star system. You know, I, I, w- I, would, I would say two, but that's just a feeling. It's not really grounded on any fact. Yeah. But in any case, it's nice to have different levels, you know? And there's definitely been some type ones in Star Trek, you know, where they beam down an away party to some planet that doesn't have a clue what phasers are and things like that. Yeah. Um, so po- don't don't make everyone that inhabits your your galaxy just homogenous. That's really boring. Something about this makes me a little about this scaling makes me a little uncomfortable though. Go on, elaborate. It's a very kind of functional, ver- like it, it's it's as though everything is just resources, you know. Okay, and. As, as as though I mean I, I know it's it's just a scale for how you how you frame a cultures or a civilization's energy usage, but there's kind of inherent in it I think the idea that it will be a good thing to be able to harness all of the the energy in a planet and that the planet is just there to be used and that the 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 solar system is just there to provide the materials to build a Dyson sphere kind of thing. There's a sort of a a very sort of interfery kind of aspect to it and one that I'd, I'd feel a little uncomfortable uncomfortable about from certain environmentalist points of view i thought of this as well i was thinking if i was a, a type tree say and i have the ability to harness the power of an entire galaxy part of me would think that my society would be like let's consider the ethics of doing so mm-hmm. so i think there could be a lot of like civilizations that could be type three but make themselves type one you know or just don't think along these lines as well. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah, you're right. It's a bit hard and fast, um, but it's still it's 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 a nice like metric to gauge sure. civilizations, just as a way of creating uh, creative constraints. Sure. But that's a very valid criticism. The whole thing about like the search for for life is it's very it's very focused on. I mean, we've only been able to receive radio waves for what like ninety years, even that. Yeah. 90 yeah, years. So we've only been listening for 90 years. We haven't been listening to everything we could possibly be listening to for 90 years. We've no idea what, like, anyone might be transmitting on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think anything saying that, oh, there, there is none there because we would have found it by now, which I have heard people say is ridiculous. Like, I mean, like, why would they even necessarily be using radio? Yeah, it's also very kind of like... Um homocentric is that the word yeah exactly it's homocentric it's it's based around what we would do is a kind of some sort of universal and it's kind of following a sort of a, a, a kind of a lamarckian idea of progress that you know you have these stages and the next stage you know you'll you'll evolve so far and then you'll get consciousness and then you'll get tools and then you'll go to space like that's only going to happen if the ability to use tools becomes first of all is randomly mutated into a species, and then that becomes useful. Yeah, no, I agree with that totally. I, I, making any of these sort of judgment calls based on our limited perspective is just mm. silly, and it's just, it just serves no purpose. And I, I'd expect if we found something, it would be like it would be more likely we'd find some kind of single cell thing or something. Yeah, like, microbes. You know, yeah, or like some kind of something analogous to lichen. And I suppose I'd agree with you there about transmitting. Not exactly transmitting diseases and stuff, but I'd agree with you there that it would be very easy to upset an alien ecosystem by the introduction of foreign, say, a more diverse human 
our Earth biosphere. Yeah, there's um, huge ethical issues. I mean, there's even yeah. ethical issues over the idea of terraforming Mars, if that yeah. ever becomes a thing. Like, people are like, do we have the right to take Mars from its natural state and make it habitable? Why yeah. is habitable good or better? A really, really good series that covers that in great detail is The Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, which we've talked about before. Have we talked about The Mars Trilogy? Yeah, uh, okay. on... Uh, I don't remember where it came up, but we have talked about it. I'll link again. This is clearly seems to be a very, very good book. Bill has advocated numerous times in the past for this, so... Yeah, I'm, he's he's a great author. Uh, that and... What was the book I, I about the Bangsian fantasy? Oh, Years of Rice and Salt. Between it, that yeah. and Years of Rice and Salt, he's, he's one of my favourite authors. So I'll link in the show notes again for people who are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a huge ethical thing when it comes to traveling through space, you know? And part of me thinks that we don't really have any right to infringe on any alien's planet, even if they are microbes, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not really too, too much worried about their rights, they're just microbes, but it would just be a shame to lose that data to me. It would be a shame to lose that like wealth of, of diversity of knowledge of yeah. what is going on there. I, I totally concur with that. It's a real tricky thing. I kind of wish that, um, like, I expect us to uh, make contact with aliens at some stage. Like, I, th- I think it definitely will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I only wish that I can be around for that. <laughs> um, as much as I don't want to die of diseases, it would be a really interesting time to see how humanity conducts itself. Mm-hmm. Um, like very very interesting I, and I'm I, I don't have any faith in humanity at all to be fair <laughs> uh, like humans were not great half the time you know so it would be very very interesting but unfortunately unfortunately I, I'd imagine I'm not going to be around for that ah uh, you never know well unless bionic upgrades maybe we'll all be subsumed in the singularity before then maybe what a joyous future <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hello. My name is Bill. I am a fighter pilot. That holds three Olympic medals in tiger wrestling. Olympic gold medals, thank you, Andrew. Ah, uh, this is true, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to, uh, like, to diminish your status as a tiger wrestler. That's okay. Just don't do it again. <laughs> okay, right. Let's do it. <laughs>